0: John chapter six, beginning in verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there is much before us in this passage, and I ask that you would, by your Spirit's grace, help us to digest it. I ask that you would give these people grace in hearing and give me grace in teaching and preaching that we all might be edified and built up in the truth. I ask that you would satisfy us with Christ himself who is our all-sufficient King. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And You may be seated. Well, before we get into the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, let me mention just four observations. John is a very good storyteller and very intentional in leading us into the next scene where Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people. This is one among the many signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples and John tells us that he includes this one that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in Jesus' name. So in order to lead us, in order to lead you into having life in Jesus' name, John kicks off the next story by laying some groundwork. Jesus is now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the first thing John points out is a large crowd following him, And they follow him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So their following of Jesus is qualified by the statement, because they saw the signs that he was doing. We've seen this sort of qualification a couple of times already in John's gospel. We saw it once in chapter 2, we saw it again in chapter 4. And each time it appears John is highlighting the people's superficial disposition toward Jesus. A disposition that may very well be present in some of you. It's not as though this crowd has denied themselves, taken up their cross, and follow Jesus as Lord of all. They're only following Jesus as sign seekers. They're not truly trusting Jesus for eternal life. They only want the immediate benefits of Jesus's power. They love what Jesus does for them without loving Jesus himself. That's why later on we'll find some of them grumbling at what Jesus says and many of them eventually forsake Jesus altogether. So that's the first thing we observe. Unbelief is present in the people. The second thing we observe is that Jesus is up on a mountain sitting with his disciples while a crowd of some 5,000 people are coming toward them. Okay, The, the last place we saw this sort of thing happen was back in chapter four, the Samaritan woman went home and told her town about Jesus, and many people start coming out to see what this guy's all about. And as people are coming to Jesus, Jesus turns to his disciples who are nearby, and he uses it as an opportunity to teach them about what's going on right before their eyes. The promises of Abraham are being fulfilled, and the fields are white for harvest. On top of that, this is the third observation. In the same way that Jesus tells his disciples in chapter four to lift up their eyes to see that the fields are white for harvest, we see Jesus here in this text, lifting up his eyes upon the crowds in verse five, before he ever says a word to Philip. And John tells us that so that we understand Jesus hasn't ceased in his mission to gather fruit for eternal life. What he's about to do before this crowd of people and what he's about to reveal of himself to his disciples has eternal life as its goal. So nobody can listen to this account of Jesus in a morally neutral position. You either trust in Jesus for eternal life and see him for who he is or you perish. Fourth observation, John tells us in verse 4 that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews is at hand. We might not make much of that at first, just a historical marker in John's storyline. But in a gospel that begins with identifying Jesus as the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And in a chapter, this chapter here, chapter 6, where Jesus says he will give his life for the world as that Passover lamb, Passover is saying so much more than simply giving us the time at which the events are happening. John means to reveal Jesus to us yet again as the one who gives himself up to death that we might gain life. So those are the four observations. Here's the situation John lays out. Unbelief is present in the hearts of the people. The disciples are nearby their teacher as crowds follow him. Jesus is still in the business of gathering fruit for eternal life and the Passover provides another golden opportunity for him to reveal himself as the one who gives, who God gives to give us life. It sounds like we're ready for another miracle. Sounds like it's time for the father to bear witness to his son again through another good and miraculous work. It's time to attack unbelief, it's time to teach the disciples, it's time to gather some more fruit and it's time to reveal Jesus Christ as Savior. So Jesus is all over this and so he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread? Philip, so that these people may eat. He doesn't ask Philip that question because he doesn't know the answer. John has given us several accounts already that have shown us that Jesus knows everything. On top of that, verse verse 6 tells us why he asked Philip that question. He said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. In other words, Jesus doesn't ask the question from his own ignorance, he asked the question to remove the ignorance in Philip, to remove the disciples' ignorance about who he really is. That's what Jesus always does with his disciples. He he is utterly devoted to revealing himself to those who truly follow him. Philip has been with Jesus from the very beginning, He has witnessed the miracle at Cana. He saw the spiritual awakening among the Samaritans. He's watched the sick be healed and the lame walk. But there's more Philip needs to treasure about Jesus himself if he's to possess eternal life. So Jesus tests him. He tests Philip with a question to see if Philip's faith remains true to who Jesus really is. In other words, in his question... Jesus is extending to Philip more than his power to meet the momentary needs of a bunch of hungry people. Jesus is extending himself to Philip. His question as a test shows that his greatest concern is that the disciples know where such a magnificent provision could ever come from. By asking Philip, where are we going where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus offers himself to Philip as his all-sufficient provider. The question is, does Philip does Philip, look to Jesus like that? The test proves that Philip doesn't look to Jesus as the all-sufficient provider, nor do the other disciples, at least not initially. They will later. That's coming. They will later, but not here. They don't understand Jesus' question because they've yet to see fully who Jesus really is. So just like the lame man did in chapter five, Philip and his disciples limit God's power to their own abilities and what they can make out of their present circumstances. Rather than turning to Jesus as the all-sufficient provider, rather than answering Jesus' question with, you are the one, Jesus, who could meet all of our needs. You have endless resources at your disposal. Even if there's no bread at all, you are all I truly need. Rather than answering like that, the disciples take Jesus' question and turn first to their own buying power, or at least what Philip could even dream up as their potential buying power for so much food. Verse 7 says, Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. In that day, a denarius was the amount you'd normally pay someone for an entire, day, an entire day's worth of work. So that translates into about eight months worth of day wages. Philip is essentially telling Jesus, 200 times what any one person has in his pocket today wouldn't even give us enough for everybody to have a spoonful of food. Then comes Andrew. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Andrew brings a boy, and he he doesn't look to their potential buying power, he looks to their present circumstances. He brings this boy to Jesus, he says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves, and two fish. But what are they for so many people? Again, this is an impossible situation for the disciples. There's not enough money, and circumstances are too dire, especially when you forget the Son of God is is, is standing right beside you. I think we all know these times well. The strain in some of your relationships are just too great to be restored to full health. The people you're pouring your life out for are just too hardened to hear another Bible passage read to them. They're just too far gone. The addictions that are waging war against your soul are just too enticing. They're just too hard to shake. The hurt it's caused is just too much to heal. The drugs that I've seen personally passed around in this city destroying people made in God's image are just too much for grace to conquer. The satanic strongholds I've encountered as a pastor and that some of you are experiencing lately as a result of gospel penetration and what some of you will be experiencing soon in Utah are just too powerful to overcome. The darkness is just too thick The barriers of culture and religious background of our neighbors are just too daunting to surmount. We know what the disciples are experiencing as they look at some 5,000 hungry people. These things are just too much, Jesus, but they're not too much for Christ. They're not too much for an all-sufficient provider. Just like the disciples, we often turn to our own self-sufficiency and to what we can see with our own eyes and what we can do with our own hands and what we can scheme up with our own minds. We have relational strains, and so we turn to another church or another affinity group. We're dealing with a hardened sinner, and so we turn to bribes and superficial smiles and anything else that might cover the offense of the gospel that he needs to hear. We lose a battle against sin, and we turn to more external controls, more isolation, and start toying with self-help psychology. We can't assuage the power of one addiction, and so we distract ourselves with another. We can't surmount the cultural barriers, and so we turn to pragmatism for answers instead of prayer and faithfulness to God's Word. And all this frantic turning to other resources when the Son of God is standing right beside us. Indeed, I mean instead of turning to Jesus as our all-sufficient Lord, we sometimes despair as we stare at our lack in any given situation. And what's really at the heart of all our despair and all our turning to self and the world for answers and supply is that we don't have enough Jesus satisfying our souls. The scriptures tell us he is the all-sufficient one who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. And he is able to supply every need of ours according to his riches in glory. And he is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The situation the disciples are in and the question Jesus raises is intended to highlight that yes, we are bankrupt, but Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything we need. So knowing this, knowing this about the disciples, knowing this about us, and knowing this about himself, Jesus patiently reveals his power once again in verses 10 to 13. Jesus says in verse 10, have the people sit down. I'm in control of this situation. Have the people sit down. He's about to show them what he's all about. John continues, now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So John is highlighting, this is, this is an immense deal here. This 5,000 men that are counted, just the men. So have them all sit down on the grass. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, remember that it's his Father who bears witness to Jesus through his works. Thank you, Father, for these things. What they're about to see through me gives thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And if that's not enough to prove his power and provision... ...he sends the disciples out again in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples... ...gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments... ...from the five barley loaves left by those who who had eaten. May I just say that by asking the disciples to gather up the fragments, Jesus is not merely establishing the ethical practice of saving your leftovers after a meal. He is revealing the nature of who He is and what His mission accomplishes, just like all of His miracles reveal. In other words, He's making it abundantly clear that He is the Son of God who came from heaven to give helpless sinners like us more than we could ever dream. It's no accident that twelve disciples pick up twelve baskets full of bread fragments. Jesus is personally telling them that He is more than enough for each of them, and not just because He gave them crazy amounts of bread to eat. Yes, He's able to supply them with the momentary provision of bread. That's abundantly clear from the miracle, but the momentary blessing of bread is only a pointer to the eternal blessings that come in a relationship with christ himself that's why he'll go on to teach the people in verse 27 you can read it there with me not to labor for the food that perishes like the food he just gave them don't labor for that stuff yeah i gave it to you don't labor for that what are they supposed to labor for? but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The point of the miracle is not the bread. It's to look through the bread to have the all-sufficient Christ himself, meeting your every need, including your greatest need, the forgiveness of your sins. Those sins which have separated you from God. In fact, that's why Jesus doesn't allow the people to make him king in verses 14 to 15. Let's look at that for a minute. Verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving, then, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself." Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why not go ahead and ride into Jerusalem as king, man? These people are for you. Jesus obviously has the power to provide an abundant spread for all his people. He obviously has the power to heal the sick. And the way he's talking in chapter five, I doubt the Roman armies could stand a chance against this guy. Why don't just get this show on the road? Go with him into Jerusalem, take over. Why is it that Jesus refuses to let the people make him king? Two answers. One answer is that Jesus doesn't need to be made king by humans, Jesus is king already. Which is what I think verses 16 to 21 prove. You ever wonder, like, why is this part about the water, Jesus walking on the water, in the middle of the passage about the bread? What's it doing there? Or you can say God has something to tell us here that's that's consistent with everything else in this passage. So this is what verses 16 to 21 say. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed out about three or four miles offshore, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So I'm not going to let the people make me king and I'll wait until the disciples are three or four miles offshore before I catch up to them walking on the water. What's going on here? Throughout the Old Testament, only God, the true King of Israel, controls the waters. That's what's going on here. In Genesis chapter 1, it's God who commands the waters to be gathered into one place that the dry land may appear. In Genesis 6, it's God who brings a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. After Israel comes through the Red Sea, Moses writes these words about God himself. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, this is Pharaoh and his armies, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. This is what God says. You, Lord, blew with your wind. The sea covered them, it is swallowed them up. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. What's Israel to say? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in power and glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or how about Psalm 107? Turn with me to Psalm 107, which is an absolutely fitting text in relation to what John says in his gospel. Psalm 107, page 506, 507 of the Pew Bible. I'll begin reading in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, just like the disciples. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. What is John's point in verses 16 to 21? After Jesus has said, No, I'm not letting these people be king. And then John puts in a story, To do what? Reveal that Jesus is king. King of the universe. Does that make sense to you? Yes. His point is that by walking on the water, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples as the true king of Israel, the one to whom all the Old Testament bears witness. And get this, he didn't have to reveal himself to the disciples that way. He could have stayed on the mountain by himself and gone a different route to meet them. He chose graciously to reveal himself to his disciples. He doesn't want them mistaking who he really is. In his patience with their unbelief, he reveals himself. He wants them to see that the one who gives them bread is also the one who steals the seas, the king of Israel himself. So answer number one as to why Jesus doesn't let the people make him king is that Jesus doesn't need people to make him king. He is king already. He will not be forced into a mold of what we want him to look like. A Jesus squeezed into our own agendas to establish our kingdom on our terms. Jesus is to be embraced for the king he truly is. God Almighty who upholds the universe by the word of his power. But there's another answer. There's another as a second answer to why Jesus doesn't let the people make him king. Namely, Jesus doesn't want them to miss the nature of his mission. He doesn't want them to miss the nature of his mission. Jesus is carrying out the mission of his father who sent him into the world. And if we are to understand Jesus rightly, we must understand the nature of his mission. God did not send his son into the world to save the world through pomp and pageantry and imperial force. He sent his son into the world as a humble servant willing to lay down his life for rebels fighting against his own kingdom. Jesus doesn't allow the people to put a crown on his head because his father has ordained he wear a crown of thorns instead. Yes, he's able to give the people bread. Yes, he controls the waters. But the kind of king Jesus is doesn't doesn't stop there. Jesus is the kind of king that goes to the cross in the place of sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath and fury and His provision of bread must be understood through that mission. Jesus could have stayed in heaven and filled their bellies with bread, just like He did with Israel in the wilderness. The point is that He came to fill their hearts with Himself through the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with God, but that would only come by submitting to the will of His Father, not to the will of a bunch of zealots in Jerusalem. The father designed for his son a cross before the crown. The people only want Jesus to be king because they want his bread, but Jesus wants them to have more than bread. He wants, them to, he wants to give them eternal life in himself. And so he resists their scheme to make him king in order to accomplish his father's will that sinners might be saved, sinners like you and me. For people to truly enjoy him as their king, they must enjoy him as the all-sufficient one. The true bread given by God for their eternal life. So that's answer number two as to why Jesus doesn't let the people make him king. The nature of his mission is not governed by the will of zealous men. The nature of his mission is governed by his Father in heaven, and that mission includes suffering for our sins on a cross. That's the way Jesus rules. That's the way Jesus is king. Now we'll see more of that in coming weeks, but I'd like to stop there and just ask you one question as we close. How are you turning to Jesus as your all-sufficient king? How are you turning to Jesus as your all-sufficient king? That may sound archaic, since the majority of us don't belong to a monarchy, nor do we usually think in those terms, but do remember that our world must not shape the Bible, but the Bible must shape our world. And the Bible depicts Jesus as reigning king over the universe, who died and rose again that we might be reconciled to God. He sits enthroned in heaven with all authority and power There are no heavenly competitors to his throne, and nobody on earth that can thwart his purposes. So the question is, how are we responding to him? If that's true, how are we responding to Jesus as our all sufficient king? In the miracle of feeding the 5,000, we see that he's totally able to meet our needs. His resources are infinite. His power is fitting for every occasion. His knowledge of our situation is perfect. In the leftovers that the disciples pick up, we see that he is more than enough for us personally. We know, he knows where we are not trusting him and knows how to work such that we see his glory more clearly and learn to trust in him. In the walking on the waters, we see that He is in total control of everything, so much control that there's no darkness too thick for Him to penetrate, there's no waves too high for Him to calm, and there's no distance too far into the storm for Him to find us and bring us back to Himself. But more than that, more than all that put together, In refusing kingship at the hands of zealots, we see a king who is steadfast in making every provision for us to be reconciled with God himself. I mentioned last week that I listened to Shilin, and I think he has it absolutely right in one of his songs when he says, So forever will I tell In three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. And he did that for me and for you. That we might be reconciled with God. So Jesus is an all-sufficient king in that he provides everything we truly need in all circumstances forever because... When you're reconciled with God, God of the universe, you have no lack. That's what it means to be God. When you're God, you don't lack anything. And if we belong to this God, neither do we. Neither do we in Christ. This is a wonderful place to be, brothers and sisters, belonging to God, knowing that in all circumstances, every need you could ever imagine and more is met through your relationship with God in Christ, because He truly is everything. He has already made provision for your bouts with depression and that you will never, ever experience. If 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 you trust in Christ, if you have faith in Him, you will never experience true separation from God, even though you may feel that He's far away at times. Jesus Himself cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you don't have to ever cry that? Moreover, he's made you friends with God, friends with God himself, who speaks to you through his word and sustains your hopes by his spirit. When you have him in that relation, what more do you need? He has already made provision for your guilt in that Christ died to cleanse you from all iniquity and to bring you into perfect fellowship with God, no guilt blameless on the last day. No need for you to be thinking when you go to him in prayer that he frowns upon you and sees you as dirty because you've been made clean by the blood of his son. That's true before you sin, when you're sinning and after you sin, if you're in Christ. He is ready to receive you into perfect fellowship, ready for you to come to his throne of grace. He has already made provision for the shame that you feel from maybe a past relationship or past things that have happened to you by clothing you with his own honor through his resurrection life. He is near to us in our parenting so that we can now relate to our children as our Heavenly Father personally relates to us. He has already made provision this afternoon when your son or daughter rejects your authority. Nothing that they can say can steal away what you possess in relationship with Christ. So there's no reason for us to turn to anger, but only patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control when we're instructing them He is our all-sufficient king in our marriages in that his death frees husbands from their selfishness to love their wives as they are sitting there watching Christ love the church and to live with their wives in in an understanding manner. He walks with us, Jesus does, as our bridegroom, never to leave us or forsake us but only to clothe us with splendor on the last day. He has already made provision for our financial predicaments in that we now belong to God himself who does everything wisely, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who clothes the fields with flowers, and who richly provides us with everything to enjoy and gives us to one another in the body of Christ that we might contribute to each other's needs even when we cannot see how the provision will come, we must trust that God will meet all of our needs because what what are any of these needs in this life in comparison to the need he has met in the cross, our reconciliation with God, who is truly everything. So maybe an example will help of how function in my own life. This week, uh, some time back, we took someone into our home to take care of them and had to eventually ask them to leave because of drug paraphernalia we found. So I don't recommend that you uh, not say you should check, you should use wisdom when you take somebody into your home. But uh, we, we were doing all we could to use wisdom. We still found it and had to ask him to leave. And the last few months have been very difficult, very dark at times. Wondering who's gonna break in at night. You don't sleep well for those reasons. Wondering what guys he's connected to. Uh, Some of the people he is connected to still pop into our lives every once in a while here at this church. So there are fears that arise. What about our children? What about our house? What about my safety? What about the staff, Dusty, Kevin, Gary? What about Stacy when she's up here cleaning? What, I mean, I'm just, fears are just going like crazy as we are meeting people and engaging them with the gospel. So what do you do at 11 o'clock when you can't sleep? How do you turn to Jesus as your all-sufficient king at 11 o'clock when you and your wife can't sleep. I'll tell you what we did. We just opened the Word and read from Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. I'll read some from Psalm 3 here. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Chapter two tells us that it's Jesus Christ himself that's sitting on God's holy hill. He answered me from his holy hill. There's a king reigning on our behalf on the holy hill. So he answers me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. And I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. We prayed through that passage, turned on a few worship songs, and went to sleep peacefully at rest in the arms of an all sufficient king who's now reigning on zion's hill that's how that's how it worked for, for us that's how we did it that's how we turned to christ in that moment and that's how we continue to turn to him as the fears arise and i would just commend the same to you how are ask yourself the question we talked about earlier. How am I turning to Christ as my all-sufficient king? So turn to him as your all-sufficient king on Monday when the children are absolutely crazy, on Tuesday when you sit down at the dinner table just to give thanks for the meal and for who he is, how it reminds you of not only the provision of what's in front of you, but the provision of himself, on Wednesday when your soul is weary from the, day before, from the day right before you're going into care group. On Thursday when your lost friend sends you another angry Facebook message rejecting Christ, thinking you're crazy for believing this stuff. On Friday when you're spent at work and the boss comes in and says, yeah, I'd like you to work a little later than usual and tomorrow. On every occasion, turn to the one who delights in revealing himself to you as the all-sufficient king. Look not to your own resources and let not the present circumstances, as dire as they may be, paralyze you. Christ has new mercies and infinite supplies at his disposal and has done everything his Father required to see that you obtain them through a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for your word. I pray that it would have its effect in all the people gathered here. I ask that in c- the coming days, Jesus himself would become more and more and more there, all of our all-sufficient King. Let these songs arise from our hearts in the next few moments and make our hearts happy in Christ as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.